Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Steve, welcome to our show today. We're so honored to have you. It's great to be here with you, Abe. Thanks for the privilege. Well, Steve, let's let's start with, uh, in our conversation, uh, the beginning of your life. Were you born here in the United States, or did you immigrate uh, from Korea? Yeah, I immigrated from Korea when I was seven. I was just about to turn eight. First arrived in California, and that was sort of an entry point, and saw some family, and then settled in Houston, Texas, where aunt and uncle lived. And my uncle was a NASA engineer, so they sponsored us, and so grew up in Houston. So you went from directly from Korea to L.A. and then straight to Houston, Texas, and you grew up there. Yeah. L.A. was a stop we had uh, on Uncle there, and, and it was funny because our first time being in America, basically, we got picked up in a Rolls Royce. We got to you know go to the house on Malibu and uh, went to Disneyland, and so uh, you know it was like, oh wow, America is quite <laughs> quite a place. But then you know eventually reality reality hit too. Yeah, share with me uh, your younger life. I mean, seven years old, you must have remembered coming to the United States and those feelings that you had coming into this country and then starting school uh, in Houston, Texas. Uh, were you picked on or bullied or did you feel welcomed into where you were moving into? Yeah, I mean, I think I had a positive perception of America because I remember you know, growing up watching American TV shows and Sesame Street and Brady Bunch. And, you know, I remember looking at like there were Sears catalogs that we would look through and just all the toys, you know, the toy section in the Sears catalog. So I think I had a positive perception of America. And, you know, when we went to Houston, it was a mixture, you know, I made friends in, in the neighborhood and at school, even though it was, a, you know, almost all white school that we went to. But then there were those experiences, those moments when you were bullied or, you know, called a name or felt very alienated. And, you know, those can be really traumatic, but it wasn't it wasn't like it happened every single day or you know, it wasn't this sort of constant thing. But definitely when it when it happens to you, it affects you, it impacts you. And of course, you know, I didn't verbalize it. I didn't talk to my parents about it. It was something I just kind of mostly held in, try to deal with on my own. And that, that was probably the unhealthiest part is not having someone to process with, deal with, or even cry with. So it was a mixture. I definitely made friends. Some of the teachers, you know, didn't treat me any different or, and welcomed me. But then definitely experiences of bullying and being called names was part of life there. So you spent most of your younger years uh, all the way through high school in the, in the Houston, Texas area. I We left Houston in the middle, kind of toward the end of my eighth grade year. Uh, Houston it was going through a, a tough economic time. Uh, there was like the gas crisis. This was uh, mid-80s. And so our family decided to move to the D.C. area for really better economy. And so we moved, you know, in the middle of our eighth grade year. And then I went to high school in the suburbs of D.C. Where did you live in D.C.? So we lived initially in a, a town called uh, Rockville, Maryland. We moved a couple of times after that in Bethesda. My parents finally settled in Silver Spring after uh, I graduated. But they had their small business uh, in D.C. But that's where I went to high school, is, uh, Rockville. I understand your father was doing Taekwondo. Did he open up a Taekwondo Tojang? Yeah, he had a primary business. I mean, when we first 
moved to DC, the, their business was like a little market. And it was a it was kind of funny because it was they sold fresh fish and ice cream and like gifts. <laughs> it was sort of a random, you know, random store. But eventually they had an opportunity to actually buy a thrift store that was next door that was going out of business. So they bought this thrift store and and it was a pretty large space and it was a large store. That became a huge opportunity for my parents. And so that business did well. This was in the mid 80s. And they had enough resources that they ended up starting a Taekwondo studio as a second business. But my dad's vision was really to, to be a community service. And he was not a, a Taekwondo master. He had to hire somebody to run, you know, to, to teach classes and really in some ways run the second business. And so that's how he ended up starting, really, because he wanted to, to provide a service in a lower income neighborhood. I'm sure you spent many hours supporting your parents. Yeah, I mean, definitely remember, probably not as much as my sisters did. I'm the youngest of three, so I was probably a little bit more spoiled than them. But um, but definitely a lot of Saturdays, you know, running the cash register. But I, I have to say my sisters got probably the brunt of the <laughs> responsibility. I'm the only son, too, so I, I, I did get off with the getting away with stuff by and not working as hard as they did. But yeah, still a lot of days at the store uh, running the cash register and helping out. What what was your relationship with your parents during this time? Just mentioned they had opened three businesses, and so I'm sure they were extremely busy. You were spending a lot of time at the stores on the weekends. What was their hopes and dreams? Were they hoping that you would be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or some kind of dream like that? You know, my parents were very unorthodox compared to, I think, a lot of Korean parents. I mean, they worked many, many hours. I mean, you know, during the week, I would really not see them except kind of late at night. You know, they'd bring food home maybe, you know, and, and have a short, very short conversation. They were tired. So, you know, I was definitely like a typical latchkey kid. You know, I had a lot of freedom, to be honest with you, in both good and bad ways. But they're kind of parenting philosophy was very hands-off. I mean, it's very unusual. And so they never really pressured me to go into any particular field or career. In some ways, I was probably more influenced by my friends and my sisters. And my both of my sisters were, you know, neither of them wanted to become a doctor or a lawyer. My sister at one point, one my, my oldest sister started to go into engineering, but then she ended up doing anthropology. My other sister did philosophy. So it's like none of us were destined to become rich, I guess, or, or, or super well off. But my parents were very just hands off. They just kind of like let us do our thing. They were supportive and they wanted to financially support us and help us, but not, not a lot of pressure to go into certain fields. But when you went to college, you chose what many would consider a non-traditional field. You went into English, film, and broadcasting. How did you come about that decision? Yeah, you know, I think when I was in college, I was trying to figure out, what, you know, what do I want to even study? <laughs> and so I kind of studied what I felt like I was interested in. I probably should have actually studied philosophy instead of English. I had a greater interest in philosophy, but I'm not, I'm not even sure exactly why I chose English over philosophy. And I had an interest in film. And, and communications. But I did a lot of journalism in college. And so I wrote about music, I wrote about culture. So I thought I might go into journalism as a, a profession and, and do writing. But, you know, I just kind of chose the majors that I was interested in because my parents allowed me to, you know, I did not pressure us to in, into something else. And so I just really studied what I felt like I was interested in. What in particular about journalism 
or philosophy for that matter. What aspect of that attracted you? I'm a big picture person. So I think philosophy was attractive to me because it was like about big ideas. It's about like the meaning of life, you know, it's like the big questions. That's always fascinated me. I think always, you know, even as a young person thought about like, what is the meaning of this? What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? You know, what's morally right? What are ethics? Um, so I think that interested me. And I, I like writing because I felt like, you know, I had some good professors and, and who encouraged me. So and I, I like being able to communicate and produce something that people actually read. And, and you know, journalism, you know, provided that. And so even though writing is still, I think, a painful exercise for me, but I like the fact that I could produce something that people could actually read and respond to. There's a little bit of a practical element that uh, there's an audience that can read my material. We'll talk a little bit about this later on, but, you know, your Christian faith plays an important role in your current work. but is this where you maybe discovered your faith or is it something prior to college? Because oftentimes college is an is interesting time where we're reevaluating everything, all the different ideas that we grew up with. I'm wondering how faith played into uh, this period of your life. Yeah, I mean, at this point in college, faith played zero role in my life because I remember going to churches growing up, it was, you know, going to Korean churches with my parents. And then I remember sort of trying youth group uh, between eighth and ninth grade. I remember going on a church retreat and just felt like, you know, there's nothing really different about the way church kids live compared to my second. They're all concerned about the same thing, like being popular and, and maybe, you know, eventually making a lot of money. So I didn't really see anything particularly different. So I just thought, you know, I like my school friends or we have more common interests. So I'll just hang out with my school friends and sort of at that point, left church behind. And by the time I got to college, I was a very devout atheist. I didn't believe in the existence of God. I was like, how can you believe in science and, and God? Like, you, you know, we're all cells. And then, you know, after we die, we're just going to become, you know, food for worms. Like, it's just all physical. And so faith played no role uh, at all. I never went to a church service, never stepped foot in a church during college. But you, you finished college, and this was 1993, and then you started Little Lights in 95, correct? Yes. Something must have happened between <laughs> 93 and 95. Can you take us through that journey from uh, from finishing college to when you started Little Lights? Yes, a lot did happen. So I graduated from college in 93, and I moved back to the D.C. area. And I lived with my two best friends from college. And I remember him being really into the stock market. He was like a rich kid from Colorado. His dad, I think, made a lot of money on real estate. He got an Alfa Romeo you know, convertible for his college graduation. And he was like a rich kid. And I remember he would constantly look at his stock quotes. Like it was a sort of a form of gambling for him, I guess. And he just would constantly look at his stock quotes. But then he took a vacation and came back. And um, he said, oh, I don't care about the stock market anymore. And I was like shocked. I was like, that's, you know, you were obsessed with the stock market before you went on vacation. And what happened was he took this drug called ecstasy and he had such an experience on it. He was like, this is what we've been looking for. And so even though I had had a very bad drug experience in college, I was like very afraid to go through anything like that again. I was very uh, timid about trying this drug, but he convinced me, it was very persuasive. I took the drug and then I had an incredible high on it. And, and I was like, I agreed with him, like, yeah, this is what we've been looking for. And, you know, you know, that's what drugs can do. 
drugs, illegal drugs can give you that sense of bliss or high where it's like all your suffering, all your pain sort of feels like it disappears and you just feel the sense of bliss. And it's really like this shortcut to, you know, I think what we yearn for, but obviously there's a, a lot of harmful effects. So we did this for a few months together. We would go to these raves, you know, dance parties that lasted all night. And there was, you know, lots of drugs around in, in most of these raves. And a few months in, I took a, I took a drug. We were at a rave five in the morning. I was in a parking lot. All of a sudden, I was just filled with terror beyond anything. I, I can't even describe the fear that I experienced. And it wasn't just like a general fear or general fear of death or just, uh, it was really like, I can only describe it as like a spiritual attack. Like I felt like there was evil, like evil spirits. It was so intense and it wouldn't wear off. So if it was just a chemical reaction, you know, a drug should wear off after a week or two or at the most for three weeks, right? A drug should wear off, but it was not wearing off. The intensity of the fear was not wearing off. And so I was in an existential crisis and I didn't know what to do. I finally had to tell my parents, like, I'm like suffering. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And my parents also didn't know what to do. They were going through their own troubles with their business. They were already stressed. They had, they had no idea what to do. A book that actually helped me go in the right direction during this period of time was a book called The Road Less Traveled. It was written by Scott Peck. It was a bestseller in the late 80s, early 90s. I remember the first sentence of the book was just three words, life is difficult. And it really grabbed my attention because, one, what I was going through was like the most difficult thing that I you know, could ever even imagine. But it also like countered, I think, a message we receive as young Americans, right? Growing up, I grew up, I remember when MTV first started, I grew up on pop culture. And I think the message that pop culture in our society often gives to young Americans is, you know, your life's supposed to be easy. Your life's supposed to be one high after another, especially, you know, if you're going to college and you're kind of the middle class, like life's supposed to be easy. And this book sort of countered that message because what I was going through was so difficult. And the premise of the book is written by psychologists is that the is that love is the foundation to mental health. That unless you feel valuable as a person, as kind of the deepest parts of yourself, you're going to suffer with issues of mental health. And as I was reading the book, it made sense. Um, that this was my biggest problem. It wasn't that I didn't have the right job or I didn't have the right girlfriend or spouse or anything material or anything even external. My biggest issue is was that I had these feelings of worthlessness and that I didn't feel valuable as a person. And this is where I needed the most help. And so the book ultimately recommended seeing a therapist so that's what I did. I was very desperate. I found a therapist, <laughs> like a classified ad, uh, went to a therapist's office and tried to practice what the book recommended. You know, one was learning how to be vulnerable to another human being uh, who could show empathy. And so at the therapist's office was the first time I was really able to tell another human being that I was lonely and I was really scared and I didn't know what to do. And just try to be really authentic and real about where I was to another person. And I, th I really believe that anytime we are speaking honestly and speaking truthfully and vulnerably, we're moving toward God, even if we don't consciously know that we're moving toward God. And so I started seeing a therapist and uh, sharing with my sister, uh, my middle sister, who's older than me, 
she had gone through a very serious depression in college. And I was sharing with her how exhausted I was, that I was really losing the will to live. I was so tired, so mentally drained, so scared. And she didn't say a single word to me. She just embraced me physically. And she did it with such tenderness that I just broke down weeping uncontrollably for 30 straight minutes, just bawling my eyes out in her arms, no words exchanged. But it was an incredibly powerful experience of compassion, of empathy. Theologically, I mean, Christians would call it grace as well, um, where I really felt understood as a human being in a deep way for the first time. And I remember just feeling like a little child in her arms, just like weeping. And that experience really changed me. It really filled my heart with compassion. And instinctively after that experience, I sort of knew that compassion is the most important thing in life. That what human beings really need is is deep compassion. You know, we're sort of told what you really need is like high paying job and status and wealth. But in reality, it's this deep sense of compassion and understanding and feeling loved and understood. And to this day, I still don't know if my sister would consider herself a Christian because she's, I think there's still too much political baggage with the church. So she was not pointing me to the church after this experience. My parents finally convinced me to try this Korean American church in Maryland. And the way they convinced me to try going to church was to tell me that the senior pastor of this church used to do worse drugs than you did, you know, when he was younger. <laughs> so that was a good sales pitch because the last thing I wanted as a, you know, uh, 20-something, you know, uh, is to go to a church and get a lecture from a pastor about saying no to drugs. And so I visited this church, and when I heard the sermon, when I heard the pastor, and I think he gave his testimony, it was like Easter Sunday, it really resonated with me because I really felt like this pastor understands what real compassion is. So I started going to church and, and listening to sermons, and my fear started to improve, started understanding the Bible, I started reading the Bible. You know, that's how I started the, my Christian journey. But the book that actually convinced me to become a Christian was a book called World Religions, perhaps, you know, ironically, by Houston Smith. And I, I read about the five major religions, but the last chapter was on Christianity. And when I read about the life of Christ, it really resonated with me. And what really struck me about Jesus was his radical compassion for the marginalized and the poor. You know, as, a, as an Asian American growing up in Houston, as a Korean American growing up in Houston, feeling marginalized was just part of life. You know, even just being Korean American in U.S. society, I feel like there's always some level of marginalization. So I really understood what it was like to be marginalized. And when I understood Christ's compassion for really the rejects of society, of those on the margins, the poor, the tax collector, the leper. And I and when I recognized that Jesus died for all people, and it's maybe especially for the marginalized, that really broke me. And I remember, you know, falling to my knees and just repenting. And I realized up to that point, I had lived my entire life for myself. It was all about my desires. Like, what do I want? <laughs> and how can I extract it from the world? How can I get more 
stuff for myself and pleasure. And here was this Jesus showing compassion and love and, and sacrificing for others, ultimately giving his life for others. And that just blew me away. And I just remember repenting of my selfishness and recognizing, you know what? I'm supposed to follow this Jesus guy because he knows the right way to live life. And so for me, becoming a Christian was like trying to live this way of life that Jesus lived. And so that's, you know, that's how I became a Christian. So was this soon after that you met a little boy by the name of Daryl? From my understanding, from reading some of your past stories that really started to trigger that with your newfound faith, this is maybe a new future career path opened up or uh, at least a ministry path. Yeah, you know, after my experience I described, my heart was really filled with compassion for people, especially those who were hurting. So I started volunteering in, you know, multiple places, and one of them was in the neighborhood where my parents owned a business. So there was a local leader. She was using my parents' Taekwondo studio space for a summer camp that she was running for kids in the neighborhood. And so I started volunteering and helping her out and meeting kids. And, you know, met a number of kids including Daryl, and Daryl was an 8th grader. He was a, it was like five, five, eight, you know, maybe 200 pounds. He was it's a, a big kid, on. not a lot of small kid. <laughs> oh yeah, it, it, he wasn't a little kid. He was bigger than me. You know, I was really skinny at that point, but he was bigger than me in eighth grade. He was a lineman on a middle school football team. He was a very gentle kid though, very sweet, gentle young man. But I remember trying to read books with him at this camp. And realizing that he could not even read a Dr. Seuss book in eighth grade. And I was just shocked that a young man in eighth grade could not read a Dr. Seuss book. And that really broke my heart for him. But, you know, I was definitely meeting other kids who were really needing attention, needing support academically, as well as relationally. But after seeing Daryl struggle so much, I really felt like, you know, there needs to be an ongoing sort of academic program. And, you know, my parents had space already. That convicted me to say, you know, we got. I, I really need to, to start something to help kids in this neighborhood. And there was a Washington Post article on my parents' Taekwondo studio by a, a local reporter. And somebody at a local church saw that article and came and visited. Her, her name is Joanne uh, Kim. She actually, after meeting me and meeting my parents and seeing the studio and, and hearing about sort of the vision to start a ministry, she actually deferred medical school for two years to help little lights get off the ground. And so it just started as a small tutoring program, Bible study inside my parents' Taekwondo studio. This was in back in 95. So that's how little lights got started. You know, I remember doing a yard sale and raised a few hundred dollars. We had some space, you know, we had a small van that we transport kids. So that's how, you know, little lights got started. And I definitely was not thinking about it as a career. I mean, I had just gone through the biggest existential crisis. I just wanted to get healthy both mentally and spiritually. And I wanted to share this love that I had experienced. So my focus was not on a career. My focus is like, how do I share this love and compassion and really the love of Christ with others? Because it was so life-changing for me. And I remember even specifically praying this. I was like, God, if you want me to work at McDonald's the rest of my life, but if I can share this love of Jesus and share the gospel, share this love of Christ and, and help bless other people, like I'm good. <laughs> you know, that's how passionate I was. And I still, you know, I, I still mean it. I, I feel like I could be joyful working in my job. I mean, and that, not to say I would enjoy the job, but I, but I really feel like life is so much bigger 
than a career or even a marriage, even just your nuclear family, that God is bigger and that there, our purpose in life is, is bigger. I'm sure you didn't anticipate that 25 years later, you'd be standing here realizing that that was a, a very pivotal moment in your life and for this ministry, this new community service program. And it's certainly grown tremendously. Let's talk a little bit about Little Lights. Why did you choose the word Little Light? Yeah, I definitely wanted some reference to light because I had gone through such a difficult, dark period. And when I experienced this compassion, when I finally understood who Jesus was, it really was like light shining in the darkness. And it was just such a sense of hope. And so I knew I wanted light, a reference to light in the name. So I remember thinking of like lampstand, light post, but I was working with kids. And so somehow I thought of little lights and it kind of stuck. There's the alliteration, you know, little lights. And then I, and then I eventually thought of the song, you know, this little light of mine, but it just felt like it made sense. You know, we're working with kids. I wanted light in the name. So that's how the name, name came about. In your mission statement here, you say Little Lights is an urban ministry empowers underserved youth, families, and, and communities in Washington, D.C. by sharing the hope of Christ through compassionate action, caring relationships, and racial reconciliation. You, did t you talked about the importance of compassion and how you came about to discover the importance of compassion. So I understand that. But could you kind of unpack a little bit those three phrases, compassionate action, caring relationships, and racial reconciliation. How does Little Lights touch upon those three aspects? Yeah, I mean, you know, compassion is definitely at the heart of what who we are as an organization and, and what we're about. But it has to have action behind it, right? Compassion isn't just about warm feelings. The reality is the average family that we serve, uh, you know, the household income is somewhere between twelve to 15000 a year. For those who don't know D.C., D.C. is a very expensive city. And to try to raise a thriving family on $12,000 a year is next to impossible. And so if we're going to be compassionate, we have to provide practical support. We have the tutoring program because there's a huge achievement gap. There's a, a lot of our students are in school and they're behind. And they don't have the resources at home. I mean, a lot of our kids don't have high-speed internet at home. And so obviously, you know, it's been a tremendous disadvantage during the pandemic but even before, trying to do well academically without having internet at home. So we provide a lot of tutoring, one-to-one -one tutoring programs six days a week. We also provide artistic opportunities and performing arts opportunities because they don't often get that at school either. And so we try to be holistic in that sense, try to provide as many resources as we can for our students because they just don't have access to, to those resources. We provide you know, free meals every day at, at programs to make sure our kids have enough to eat throughout, throughout the month. So we believe in being very practical. We have a family center. We're helping people with the resumes, find jobs. We have a landscaping business called the Clean Green Team that provides job training as well as ongoing employment. We're very much about empowering people economically and practically. We have a one-to-one -one Christian mentoring program, and that's probably a big part of our relationship portion is, is our one-to-one -one mentoring, where it's like a big brother, big sister program that's faith-based, that's for our students in our other programs. And we're very much about relationships. We get to know the families. We're really entrenched in the community. A number of our sites are actually on the grounds of public housing. So the kids can walk to our sites even without crossing a street because it's literally within the apartment complex. And that works perfectly for us because we really want to be part of the fabric of the neighborhood and build relationships 
not just programmatically, but really friendships, like that we're part of their family. In a sense. We're like an extended family to them. And so we'll have, you know, kids years after they leave our program and come back and connect with us and visit. Sometimes they'll work for us part-time. We have two of our full-time staff who are alumni because we've maintained those relationships and we've really been part of the community and not just the program. So we're very much about those relationships. And then racial reconciliation is, you know, ever since the beginning, I've seen, especially maybe in the church, but in society as a whole, the racial divide. The public housing communities we work in are pretty much 100% or 99.9% African-American. And so you see the racial divide very clearly in a city like D.C., but you definitely also see it in the church where, you know, 11 o'clock Sunday morning still being the most segregated hour in America. You know, there are reasons for that. There's reasons why it's the most segregated hour in America. There's reasons for why there's extreme poverty in a city like D.C. that's very racialized. And so that's always been on my heart is how do we bring unity? You know, because I, I feel like it's on, on God's heart to be one, to be united. And, you know, Jesus prayed about it. Scripture talks about it, the importance of unity. And so that's always been on my heart to wanting to see racial healing because I know that there's a lot of pain when it comes to issues of race that hasn't been healed. And we see the result of that lack of healing in our society today. There's so much strife. There's even violence. There's anger. There's protest. Because there are wounds that have not been healed. And unless we really address the wounds, they're not going to be healed. They're not going to heal by themselves. Time by itself is not going to heal these wounds. And so that's always been something I've I've been passionate about. Because I really feel like that's that's what our society needs. That's what the church needs if we're going to create a, a more loving, just world. And so that's something I definitely feel passionate about. And on top of that, at a personal level, I've gained so much by relating and building relationships, especially in the African-American community, but also just the diversity at Little Lights. We have volunteers and board members and staff, many different backgrounds, racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. And I just love the diversity. I've gained so much personally from that level of diversity and different perspectives and different even ways to worship that I want other people to, to be blessed by that as well. I want to touch on this question of racial relations, but I just want to dig a little bit deeper into how much Little Light has grown in terms of the neighborhood. How many students and families do you minister to on a regular day like or a regular month, let's say pre-COVID, <laughs> and is it primarily in the Washington, D.C. area? Mm-hmm. All of our programs are in the district, pretty much all focused on public housing, so government-run apartment complexes. And we, we don't actually, and our philosophy is to go deep and not wide. And so we work with about 130 kids, but we see them five, sometimes six days a week. Kids have mentors on weekends. And we see them for many hours and throughout the entire year. Because we really believe that if we're really going to help students who are in public housing, who are living in deep poverty, you need a lot of intensity. And so we don't try to work with just lots of students at a superficial level. We try to provide as much wraparound support for uh, a limited number of students. So even though we're in, you know, multiple public housing, we really focus on a specific number of kids and try to provide as much wraparound support for the families and for the students. And so, you know, you know, through our family center, we have about 300 adults in a year that come through. Our landscaping business, you know, employs about nine 
nine guys on an ongoing basis. So our philosophy is definitely like we're very neighborhood focused. We're about depth rather than breadth. But we, you know, we have expanded over time, but very organically. We don't want to just be superficial, just to, you know, have a lot of students, but to, to really go deep with a smaller number of students. I want to touch upon your family, too. Obviously, your wife is not only a life partner, but also a partner in your ministry as well. I understand she's the deputy director. Can you share with us how, how you met her and how she got involved with this work that you're doing together? Yeah, I remember the first time we met was actually at a post-bridal shower social. I was friends with her future brother-in-law. We were part of like a men's prayer group. He was getting married to my wife's sister. So he invited us to this post-social. And actually, I think he was trying to set my wife, Mary, up with this other guy who had a better paying job. <laughs> but she found me more interesting, even though uh, my hair is disheveled. I think I just woke up <laughs> from a nap after working with kids. And so even though I was pretty much making all no money, she just found me more interesting. And so <laughs> we just, at a coffee shop, we you know, struck up a conversation while we were, you know, with with a group of people. And so that's how we first met. And, and I just found her, you know, very interesting. And she found me very interesting. But she was living in New York at the time. So I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is could be my future spouse. But I just, we definitely connected uh, during that social and felt the connection. But then she ended up moving down to D.C. after finishing, finishing grad school. And she saw an ad in her church bulletin for Little Lights for our camp she was attending a church that we had a relationship with. And so she, she called me and said, I want to volunteer. And so I just told her to yeah, bring a backpack and <laughs> and show up. There was, we really didn't have a, a huge formal process for volunteering at that point. And then we got to know each other better after, as she started volunteering at our, our, our camp. I imagine soon after you got married and now you have, uh, you have two kids, right? How, how old are your kids right now? One just turned 17 and one just turned 15. And they're uh, two teenagers, so I have I having teenagers, I know the uh, the joys and challenges of having teenagers in the house. I'm interested in that you also decided to move into the neighborhood where you're ministering to, you know, the community that you're serving. I'm, I'm assuming you're still living in the neighborhood right now as well. Is that correct? It's actually interesting because the, the public housing community, the neighborhood was gentrifying so we actually couldn't afford to live right next to the public housing because the prices uh, had gone up enough where it was a little out of our, our reach to live there so we ended up living in a in terms of the neighborhood a lower income neighborhood in Anacostia and so we uh, bought a small home there and so it was actually about a, a five minute drive away because uh, yeah the neighborhood where where the public housing was and that we were working with, the housing prices around it had started going up. Our main office is now, you know, very few blocks from the public housing, but we, you know, we, we have been living in Anacostia, which is a, a little, you know, a few minute drive away, but in a non, non-gentrified neighborhood, I guess, in a low, in some ways, a lower income neighborhood that where the public housing actually is situated. So tell me about your kids. In some ways, they're like missionary kids, right? They came together. And I've, I've talked to parents who have been, you know, either traveling abroad for work and, and kids are brought along. And how it, the work you've been doing it has impacted your kids? You know, I mean, you know, our kids have grown up like 
helping us out, going into public housing, volunteering, also participating like they're part of the choir that they were younger. And I, I think they probably don't fully understand how unusual their childhood is. Maybe until maybe they go to college and they realize that almost nobody else you know, had that kind of upbringing. They've been able to go to good schools. They've never gone hungry. You know, they've always had internet at home. You know, we've shielded them you know, quite a bit. I think they'll come to appreciate their childhood more, I think, later, recognizing that they've got to build relationships with, you know, diverse people and to have, to visit churches that, you know, not everybody has visited and, and just experience the diversity that come from Little Whites. They're actually taking the race literacy class with a couple of their friends uh, online with me right now. And, you know, learning about those types of issues in the home and at Little Lights, I think will definitely be beneficial to them. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's been hard too, because they, you know, I think they felt isolated from their friends sometimes because of, we live further away from their friends live. And so, you know, they also know there's been drawbacks to our lifestyle, but by and large, I mean, they've seen us at home because, you know, flexibility, our schedule. So we've been able to, to be home with them for many meals and make sure we take vacations and things like that. So they don't have any complaints. They know that they've had good lives. I think they all, almost feel guilty sometimes because they, they see the, our students who struggle, who don't have internet at home, and uh, and then they, they have all these resources. So I think in some ways they feel guilty that they've been so blessed. But I have great, yeah, great kids. Of course, occasional attitude, but <laughs> as teens, but, uh, you know, they're amazing kids. And now, as I mentioned before, it's 25 years have gone through this journey for 25 years. I imagine it hasn't all been a walk through the park, as they say, right? Have you had failures and things that you wish you could do again if you could do um, some ministry like this again? Yeah, lots of ups and downs. I mean, lots of painful experiences. I mean, we've had, we've been to a lot of funerals. You know, we've seen, we've gone to a lot of candlelight vigils of both young and old who have passed away, whether it's through violence or whether it's through illness. So there's a, there's a lot of sadness and how difficult it is for, you know, these families to try to get out of poverty. I mean, in a city like D.C. especially, where housing is so expensive, and if you don't have a college degree, it's just going to be so difficult. You know, we just try to learn from our mistakes. Of course, you make a lot of mistakes. I mean, I did not come in with that, with a lot of experience. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with just being naive, too, and knowing even just basic things like, how to hire well. And I think anyone who's ever even started, let's say, a business can understand you 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 can make mistakes in things like who you hire. And you you, you want to give everyone a chance. You want to believe the best ever in everybody. Sometimes you you end up hiring someone that doesn't work out and you might have to fire them and that can be very challenging and difficult. Fundraising and non nonprofits can be challenging and it's something you have to be persistent at and create a system right, to be able to do this and to, to make a sustainable organization. It uh, requires a lot of persistence, but it also requires asking for help and knowing that you can't do it all by yourself. Like I know, you know, after all these t years, like things that I'm good at and things that I'm not so good at, and it's recognizing the things that you're not good at and, and finding people who you can trust that, and who, are, who uh, are good at those things. And you really have to build a strong team and a strong culture. And, you know, a lot of that you just, you have to learn and you have to learn sometimes from mistakes. And so I've definitely made a lot of mistakes 
but the, none of them have been fatal, thankfully. <laughs> and so as long as they're not fatal, you can learn from it and get better and ask for help, whether it's through hiring staff or volunteers, board members. I mean, we, we've had to grow our board and strengthen our board of directors and find the right people who fit into the culture, who believe in our mission. And you're always going to make mistakes. And that's just part of it. You know, we don't expect perfection. And we always are trying to grow, always trying to improve. I and mean, that's just part of our DNA is like, we're always trying to improve. And mistakes can be okay. You know, mistake, we are going to make mistakes. But we always want to try to improve so we don't make it again or we, we, we do things better than before. You know, I think those are some of the things that, that I've learned. And, and, you know, there's definitely been painful experiences of having to, to let go of people or people leaving unhappy with the organization or even parents who been mad at us because we didn't you know provide something that they needed or you know, there's always criticism is definitely going to be part of any any nonprofit any ministry I think any business too that you have to take the criticism and you have to to, to determine what's legitimate in the criticism and correct those things but then also not take it personally and let certain things roll off when you know they're not constructive it's not helpful. And so I think one thing I've had to learn is to, to try to not take things personally when there's criticism, because there's always going to be there. And but, but to also receive criticism in a way that can be constructive and, and help the organization. And so I think that's served us well. Obviously, we're living through uh, this COVID-19 pandemic currently. And how has it impacted the public health, the economic, and how has it impacted your organization specifically? In terms of the people we're serving, I mean, it's obviously challenging, but one thing about our our families and our students is they know how to deal with difficult circumstances because it's their life. I mean, they've had to deal with violence in their community. They've had to deal with poverty. They've had to deal with not having enough food on the table and trying to survive, uh, not having a working phone or working and not having internet. And so, you know, our families are resourceful. They do rely on each other. They do rely on on organizations like ours and, and, and try to fill in the gaps best they can. But, you know, our students are very resilient. Our families are resilient. They're survivors. They know, you know, they, they know how to survive. And so they're surviving through this time. Uh, you know, you know, for our students or young students, they probably don't realize how detrimental it is for them not to have school. Some of them might be thinking, oh, this is great. I have so much more free time to, you know, to play. And so they may not understand this, how detrimental this time is to their education. But we, uh, we've been providing a lot of virtual tutoring and, and virtual instruction uh, during this time. And you know, a number of our kids have been accessing that. We've handed out you know, tablets that have internet installed so that our kids can continue to learn. You know. But our families are resilient. And, uh, but you know, I haven't heard too many cases of, of people actually having COVID, thankfully. But, you know, people are surviving like in some ways like they always have. And so um, but with the organization, yeah, we've had to shift everything. Everything has shifted. We're you know mostly working from home and doing virtual programs. Mostly. We do emergency relief. We pass out groceries. We pass out masks, you know, pretty much on a daily basis. We still pass out diapers. So we have relief services at our sites to provide those physical resources to the community. But yeah, a lot of our programming has been virtual. In this this fall, starting mid-September, we are going to provide some learning hubs for people, for kids to, a few students at a time to come to our center to get the 
computer access to get a little extra help, uh, you know, with the social distancing, with all the masks and safety protocols. So we are going to start some in-person programming. But yeah, uh, yeah, our fundraising event, the fall benefit is all going to be virtual. So we've had to shift. I mean, none of us had used Zoom <laughs> before the pandemic. I, I think I'd heard of it, but none of us had used it. But now it's like obviously an essential part of our work. And even teaching the race literacy class that was in person before virtually, that has become a bigger part of what we do. And it's become bigger because it's virtual, uh, that more people are accessing it. And so I think in some ways, we're also learning new things during this time that I think will benefit us in the future, like using this technology, I think will have benefits in the future, even as we are, it's absolutely necessary right now. But yeah, every aspect of our organization has, has changed. Well, in certain ways, you've discovered a tool to scale the good work you're doing. What would you recommend to the Korean American community specifically that we should be doing more to help build bridges with the African American community, especially right now? Because it seems like we're in a very fluid and a momentous and an awakening time where people are asking the questions that you've just asked and learning more about history. And I think a lot of people are anxious. What more can we do? There must be something to change the narrative of race, right? I think it's there's a, there's an inner work and an outer work. One is is learning some of the history and and, and reading African American writers or watching documentaries that that help us understand this history. Why is there this enormous wealth disparity among blacks and whites in the United States? And until we sort of be, grapple with that and begin to understand it, our solution may be off. So there's the inner work, and also Asian Americans, we have to process how ideas of white supremacy, or you might say white superiority, have impacted even our sense of identity and our worldview. You know, a lot of us have grown up believing that it's better to be white, or something that's, there's something better about being white than, uh, you know, something else. We have to analyze those things. How do how do we gain those ideas? How has it impacted us? How has it influenced even our vision of ourselves? I mean, some of us may even have levels of self hatred being being Asian in America, right? Unless we process that. So there's education that we definitely have to do, as well as processing of our own even a sense of identity. But there's also the outer work of building relationships in a humble way, not as like I'm here to save. But I'm here to learn. I'm here to serve. I'm here to uh, be with rather than I'm here to save you and, and fix your problems because I don't have those problems. I think it's, you know, it's, it's the character of, of humility of entering into to relationships with African-Americans and entering into com African-American communities with a humble spirit and a, a learning spirit. We do have, I mean, the reality, we do have so much to learn from the African-American community. I mean, they have dealt with race issues for 400 years. I mean, they, they have a philosophy, they have academia, they have a, a spiritual theology that has confronted racism for hundreds of years that we can learn from, even to get a better understanding of who God is and God's heart for, for issues of justice. And so I think we have to go with a humble spirit and, and learn the history and recognize just how persistent systemic racism and historical racism has been in the United States. And that we are we entered as immigrants into this talk really a toxic 
uh, context and toxic atmosphere of race. And we've got no training on it. <laughs> Our parents didn't know what they were getting into. We still don't quite understand what we're in. Uh, it's really a toxic atmosphere uh, of race, and it has hundreds of years of history. And we have to begin to understand our own environment and context, I think, to be part of the solution. Because race has Im impacts every aspect of life, every institution, ch our church institutions, our theology, our identities. It's, it's a, a very powerful concept, and, and it's a very powerful aspect of our cultural DNA. But yeah, the race literacy class, I think, has definitely opened up a lot of eyes. It's an 11 week class, but I think it's really helped people to, to begin the journey of really understanding what racism is and what the ideology of racism, where, you know, where it comes from. I imagine from all different racial backgrounds, including African-American students as well, in these classes, how do your students respond? And particularly African-American students, I'm interested in terms of uh, how they engage as you're bringing this I guess these ideas, the history, and other things, especially in this time right now, uh, where our country is asking those questions about the issues related to race, and on, on top of a, a very politically partisan environment that we're all living in, uh, I'm curious how the students are engaging with you as an as a teacher. <laughs> you know, we've had all three summer classes have sold out. You know, like 120 to 130 people per class. I think most of the African-Americans who take out, pretty much so far, every African-American that has taken the class has appreciated the class. Because one, it explains for them <laughs> the issues of racism and systemic racism. So they don't have to explain it themselves. So in some ways, it takes some of the burden off of African-Americans to try to explain what's going on in America <laughs> and what has gone on in America. Uh, and I think for a lot of African-Americans, even though they are better, more knowledgeable about this history than the average white person or the average Asian American or Korean American, they still learn a lot of new material because it's just not something we learn in school. And so, so I mean, I've definitely had African Americans just have aha moments and just like, oh, that's why my grandparents had this issue. Or that um, one, one uh Participant said, you know, I used to, I remember looking down on family members who are living on public housing and sort of feeling shame. But now I understand why that happened. So I feel less shame toward them. And, I, and they actually repented of feeling shameful toward family members after understanding the history better. So I think it's been liberating for African-Americans as, as well as others. I mean, and there's some, I mean, this is not an easy class. There's some really tough, hard truths, disturbing truths, uncomfortable truths in the class. Some people will drop out. I mean, especially, I would say, especially whites who really don't want to learn this or feel troubled by it or too uncomfortable by it. So definitely people have dropped out. But more often than not, people are like extremely grateful to, to learn. And they a, a very common response is, I can't believe I learned this when I'm 30 or 40 or 50. I can't believe I didn't learn this uh, before. And, it, you know, once you do take that, you realize, how could we not learn this? How could, you really can't understand American society without understanding race. And people will be confused about what's going on perpetually until they begin to understand how race has worked in, in American society. 
do you bring faith into this as well? Yeah, I mean, the, the curriculum is geared for church-going folks. There's a lot of history. There's some science, uh, but there's also some scripture about, and it's really about Christian ethics, about, and it's also about discipleship, that confronting racism, confronting injustice is a biblical call. It is a is on the heart of God. God, why would God not care about some human suffering? I mean, in Nazi Germany, how would we respect a God who didn't care that 10 million people were being slaughtered by the government? How would we respect a God that just turned a blind eye to that and said, that's not a big deal because it's done by government? Same thing with North Korea. It would be unimaginable for me to think God doesn't care about people being persecuted in North Korea. Of course he cares. Like, it's human beings. Human beings are suffering. Anywhere that human beings are suffering, God cares about that. And any, anywhere there's oppression by a government and other forces, of course God cares about that. I would not want to worship a God that did, was so uncaring about the suffering of human beings. And so that's really what it's all about. But it, somehow we've got it so messed up that if done by government or done by in some sort of corporate way, God doesn't care. It's only about our individual sin or my sexual sin or whatever that God cares about or, you know, homosexuality, like God gets really angry about homosexuality, but oh, 10 million people being slaughtered by government. Oh, God doesn't care about that. Like, how would we respect a God like that? And I think so. We, and I think this is, you know, this is how we have to correct even things like our theology because it's been influenced by a history of oppression to, to almost convince us to turn a blind eye toward uh, injustice. If someone is interested in taking your class, how do they take your class? Is there a way to sign up for it? Are you still teaching that for the fall? Go to littlelights.org. You can also email raceliteracy at littlelights.org to get more information. Just say, hey, I'd like to learn about when the next class is. Raceliteracy at littlelights.org. You can go to the littlelights.org website and look under uh, programs and find race literacy there as well. Probably the easiest way is to email us at raceliteracy at littlelights.org. Wonderful. I have one final question to, to end our, our podcast here together is, uh, if you could meet your 19-year-old self, what would you tell the 19-year-old Steve as a word of wisdom? One, that you know, there's more to life than being popular and having a good time and, and, and finding a girlfriend. God is real, that God is love, and that as hard as it is to believe, there is a bigger meaning to life and that God actually does love you and care about you. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for your insights and, and really opening up your life to all of us. And we really appreciate the work you're doing, the service you're providing for your community and really being a leader and example for uh, the American community uh, at large. We wish you the best, especially on this monumental milestone year for Little Light's 25th anniversary and the work that you, your wife, uh, Mary, and, and of course your most capable staff and volunteers have been giving everything of themselves. So thank you very much, Steve. Thanks, Abe. Great spending this time with you. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.